Would you open your Bibles to 1 John? We're going to look at chapter 2, verses 3 through 6 this morning. John is going to enter into this idea of, of a test, if you will, right? And, and a way that we can know that we are in the faith, that we follow after uh, this wonderful Savior that we just took communion at. This is an identity marker in our lives, and I've called this sermon the test of righteousness. Um, and it really speaks. It speaks, John is speaking to the idea of, of, of identity, right? Who we are, who we profess, the things that, that is important to us show themselves in how we conduct our lives, and John's going to touch on that. You know, he's been hitting us pretty hard with sin and, and all those kind of things, but he did in with propitiation, right, with the, the sermon last week. Uh, but here he's really talking about this test, right? How do we know that we know? And how can we have assurance? Some wonderful questions. Maybe you've, you've pondered those or thought about those. Uh, you know, there's a story of, a, of a, a New York family who decided to sell their, their, what they had in New York and start a ranch. They want to start a ranch, a cattle ranch. So they move out to the West and they start this ranch. And there was a gentleman who came by and said, well, I noticed you don't have a name for your ranch. What are you going to call your ranch? And the man said, well, I, I'm partial to Bar J. I like that. It sounds good. And he goes, but my wife favors Susie Q. <laughs> he goes on and says, but my son added, added his own thoughts, and he came up with Flying W. And he goes, and of course, my daughter, she had to chime in. She wanted to call it the Lazy Y. So he goes, I couldn't make up my mind, so I just named our ranch the Bar J, Susie Q, Flying W, Lazy Y Ranch. <laughs> Man thinks that's odd, and he looks around and says, well, where are your cattle? And he goes, well, none of them survived the branding. <laughs> that's right. And we're thankful, Lord, that, that, uh, to the Lord that he doesn't go about it that way, right, in our own identity. But John hits on this, this test of righteousness. Is, and let's look at the passage here. This is 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 3, and we'll read through verse 6. He says, Now by this, right, we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, he is a liar. The truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. And by this we know that we are in him. In verse 6 he says, He who says he abides in him, speaking of Jesus, ought himself also to walk just as Jesus walked. Right? He walked. So let me offer a brief prayer as we look at this passage this morning. Father, thank you. Thank you for this time as we've opened our, our hearts and our lives to you. I pray that by your Spirit you would teach us. Give us the ability, Lord, to see the truth of your word and apply it to our lives. So I ask, Lord, that every life and thoughts and I be fixed upon you. And allow me, Lord, to get out of the way. And we pray this in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. So we've kind of gone through this, this, well, we haven't kind of, we've gone through this, and John's been very point blank. And when we see in this passage again, he's very point blank. It's almost like he doesn't have time, right? He doesn't want to say all these words. He just wants to come to the point. And he uses words like liar, right? You're a liar. He's used that a few times. 
It's kind of harsh. You kind of read through the first chapter and we see him dealing with these things. He sets up the, the overarching statement, right, where he says God is light and in him there is no darkness. And we learn that God is, he's holy. And because of this, John kind of goes through his thought process and he says, well, look, the, because he's holy, well, ultimately we need a savior. It's pointing to us, the need of the cross. But he's dealing with these Gnostic guys who are coming onto the scene, creating some confusion. They've, you know, they've got the better track. Yes, we've got, you know, the 2.0 version of Christianity. It's a little better. It's a little higher than yours. I mean, let's just face it, let's be honest. And this is kind of happening, and he's got these people who are kind of confused. And so John says, all right, look, if there are those who claim to be part of the light, right, and still walking in the darkness, he says they're living a lie. If they say there is no sin, which is what they were claiming, right? There's no sin. They've reduced it down to what they deem is and is not sin, right? And so they've kind of said, well, this is what it is, and I don't do it, so therefore I don't sin, right? And John says, well, they've, they're deceived, right? That's it. I mean, point blank, they're deceived. Then he goes on and says, if, if someone says they have not sinned, right? Say, we, we, don't, we don't sin. He says, this person, again, he comes back to lying, saying they know better. They know the truth. They're just lying to you, right? And then he kind of goes, wait, if he leaves it there for us, we kind of go, well, John, what, what are we left with? Right, and you see in verse 10, it says, if we say we have not sinned, right, we make God the ultimate, the severity of our sin is we make God a liar. And that's what I think we see happening in our world, right? If the world is the naturalism is the, is the prevailing worldview, and it says that if there's a God, he's kind of, he, you know, he's not important, he's irrelevant. So if we get God out of the way, we can define sin if there is sin and what not is sin and all that kind of thing happens. Isn't that what we're happening? We have the endorsement. Right, even from, from those who profess to know Christ, the endorsement of things that are completely outside of Scripture, and, and this is what we're having. We'd have to conclude, if we agree with John, um, that we would say, well, we're making God out to be a liar. Because God messed up on this, right? And we've got John, who's an eyewitness. He walked with Christ. He, he speaks the first four verses. He says, man, I've been there. This is what I've heard, right? I've seen Jesus. I've seen the look on his face. I've seen him in the, in the garden. We talked about that last Sunday, right? And we've seen him there. I know how he prayed. I know him. Right? And by John, John means when I know him, I, I saw the empty tomb. I came to believe on him. He's my Savior. So we have John as an eyewitness, and he's going to look, this is what's happening. But if, if we're coming out and we, and we say there's, there's no sin, if we say we haven't sinned, right? And again, you have to realize that John's sitting in the pew. He, he includes himself with us, right? He's sitting in the pew with us, saying, if we say we haven't sinned, you're making God a liar. So we see the severity of it, but then wonderfully, thankfully, God's grace and mercy, he, he, he contrasts that in the beginning of, of chapter 2. He says, my little children, it's a term of endearment, right? These things I write to you that you may not sin, but if anyone sins, we have an advocate, right? Jesus, the righteous. You almost see the breastplate, right? The advocate. Jesus, the righteous, the propitiation of our sins. And he himself, right, the propitiation, but not ours only, right? For those who profess him, those who come to know him. It's not for the elite only, like the Gnostics believed. And it's out of that context that John goes on from there, and he goes into this passage, and he says, And now by this we know that we know him. We know that we have forgiveness. We know that we have the, pro the propitiation, the means by which God has provided for us to be saved. And it comes to, this is my first point, this is the moral test. When I did the introduction to, to 1 John, I talked about the three tests, the moral test, the social test, and, the, and the, uh, the doctrinal test. And John's hitting on this. By this we know, right? We can have confidence. We can have assurance. 
right? And again, I think John is speaking out of his own experience with Christ. And it's interesting, right? If you look at this, and John doesn't kind of come out and say, well, you know, here it is, point blank, if you believe this, X, Y, if you have this, you can be, you know, you're born again. If you've, you've been baptized, he doesn't do any of that. He bases this, this statement, right? You can have assurance by knowledge, you think that's kind of interesting, right? Knowledge, really, isn't that what the Gnostics were claiming? We've got this higher knowledge. And John comes on the scene here and he says, hey, look, we can know him. And he uses this word, gnosko, right, which is the Greek word for knowledge. And he uses this knowledge. And the idea that this word contains, it means that a, a person can, can learn through personal direct uh, contact or personal experience. And it implies a continuity of relationship. Right? He's saying that you can know a person. You can know the truth because it's contained in Christ. So this is pretty interesting. He kind of comes out and he's kind of dealing with his Gnostics. or saying, we've got the higher track. Right? And don't you hear that in our world? Right? We're so much smarter than you Christians. We've got the inst- We're above all that. You guys are archaic. Right? And John's dealing with the same thing. There's really nothing new under the sun. We see it here. We see it played in our own, our own day. And John says, well, this is it. Here's the test. And it goes right against the face of this whole higher acclaimed knowledge. John says there is knowledge. It's righteous living, right? There's knowledge. This is the person who walks in the light, who understands, who has comprehension, truly looks at the world biblically, looks at the world correctly. That's what he's saying. I mean, it's pretty blunt of John to come out and say this thing, right? We can know. And if you look at this, if you just step a little bit into this environment that John's dealing with, the early Greeks, they believed that, that you could attain, you could arrive by right reasoning, by right deduction, you could arrive at a knowledge of God. You can get there all on your own, right? We can, whatever that is, right? They defined God you know, outside of Scripture, so they defined it, but they believed in this idea of higher knowledge. It was very important to them. A little later from that, right, Plato comes on the scene and he has this idea that knowledge is, is the form of ideas with his, you know, unmoved mover and the emanations that come from him. And he had all these things worked out, these ideals, and he turns it into this kind of a religion, if you will. But if we were really to look at that and the problems with that, right, this view that John is, he's saying this higher knowledge, if you think that's it, this, this, uh, this God you've turned it into, little g, there's really a problem. There's no basic for ethics, Right? we got so much knowledge, we're above it all. There's no real basic for ethics. Isn't that what we see in our society? Right? Ethics has been gone a long time ago. We didn't really hardly talk about it. Morality? Those things are gone. And John's saying, well, look, look, this is what it leads to, right? There's a problem with, with ethics. You have no truth, you know, with ethics. And it doesn't stir our emotions. I mean, we get to this idea of just knowledge. Knowledge is good, but if it doesn't work itself out into application, which is John has been talking about, it doesn't really see change. Right? And so these, these intellectuals who were kind of arrived at the, that this knowledge of God, that's all they had. They had no basis for ethics right, at all. It truly doesn't stir our emotions to anything. So over time, this kind of developed, and then you see the pendulum swing. And so other religions kind of came on and kind of figured this out. You know, people aren't emotionally uh, connecting this way, so how are we going to fix that? I know, let's, let's kind of devoid the mind. Let's get rid of the mind. Let's start focusing on the senses, Right? Get some emotionalism going here. This will solve it because that's always good. So here we have these other religions that come on the scene that, that utilize you know, lighting and, and liturgy and chanting and incense. And they had this emotional feeling, right? This is what they were kind of uh, wrapping their minds around a little bit and saying, okay, that's not about thinking. Let's, that's about this other emotional experience. Well, there's also problems here. 
right? Because emotion doesn't last. It's fleeting. So what do we do, right? It's, it's the Monday morning thing. If Monday came, comes around, it's coming tomorrow. What do we do then, right? We've got problems with that. And the same thing still goes on. Now it's, it's, this, it's devoid of, of thinking, of intellect, of, in, of intellect thinking, right? So the mind is absent. So we have a problem with that because it doesn't really do. We can't apply this. We can't apply it to like the worldview if it's just an emotion because it's all subjective, right? How do I know the same emotion you had as it was what I had, right? It's that whole thing of like the same the color blue, the same color to, to you. It is me, right? Remember that whole is the dress gold thing that went around. It's all senses, Right? And people say, if you stand, you know, oh, I, I saw it, right? I believe it, I saw it, all that stuff. And, I, you know, I can stand on a pair of railroad tracks, and I do this occasionally when I drive over them because there's plenty of them here, right? And have, you ever, have you ever kind of just gradually gone over them and looked down the railroad tracks? My eyes tell me, guarantee it, that they touch. Those two rails, way down there, they touch. That's what my eyes tell me, right? I, but that's kind of this idea of sense. It looks good, tastes good, but it's not reality. It's not true. I know they don't touch, right? The train can't go on, but rails touch. But my eyes tell me that. And John is dealing with this idea of, no, this isn't what it's about. It's not about senses. It's not about an emotionalism. It's not about some cold thing. But that's what these Greeks were left with. They had a cold rationalism for their little G-God, right? This is what we're left with, a cold rationalism or some type of passing emotional experience. Maybe you know someone like that, right? They know better than you. It's up here, or maybe it's just all emotionally driven. And so John comes onto the scene here, and he says, look, here's the contrast. God's un, you know, understanding or having a knowledge of God is both personal and practical. Therefore, it's satisfying. Right? This knowledge that John is speaking of is not built on an idea right, or a form. It's built on a person, Right? Christ. And it issues a profound change of conduct, right? You don't come in contact with God and not be changed. And of course, this is not unique to John. This is in line with Scripture. We see this throughout. If you go to the, an Old Testament example, Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, where Jeremiah says, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, says the Lord. And you think about that statement and who John is dealing with, and in the first part, absolutely, they would track with that, the Greeks and those of the Gnostics, they would say, yeah, that man's glory is the knowledge of God, right? We, we know God. But the second part of this, right, boasting and understanding, he knows me, that I am the Lord exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness on the earth, and desiring that, that those who come after me, right, would emulate these things and live them out, that would be completely foreign to their thinking, and this is really John's point, right? This is how it becomes a test. This is how it becomes a moral test that we can know because John's point is there is no knowledge of God, right? Understanding who he is without some type of accompanying righteousness, some type of life change that happens. John is convinced of this. If you come 
and understand the severity of your sin, that at one point you stood against God and you pointed him out and you said, Lord, you're lying about this. And then you come to the realization that, you know what, I'm a sinner in need of God's grace. And then I see his propitiation. I understand the advocate he's given to me. It's Christ the righteous. And when you get that, he, he, John concludes that it will manifest itself in life change. And it's interesting, he goes on, John, this, he says this stuff, that we can know him. Right? The first test is that we can know him. But I think the idea for us, maybe this morning, maybe you're kind of going, okay, well, what does that look like? Right? Well, maybe the question is, but how do am I confident I know him? How do I know that I know him? Right? And of course, we could go, how do I know that I know that I know him? And of course, the answer is, right? John is convinced that if you, you come to know the character of God, if you've come to understand that, that he is light, in him there is no darkness. If you believe on that, you realize and we stack our life against that truth and realize, man, there's no hope for me. I feel the weight and the sin in my heart. I know that I'm a sinner. I'm, I've justified things. I know my guilt. I know my brokenness. Which is John's point. He's driving it home. He's driving it home, but he drives it all the way to the cross. There's a Savior. Because John is convinced that if you come into this character of God, that God is light, and you understand the advocate he's given you in Jesus, it'll change your character. And you say, why is this a proof? Why is this a proof? Why does John choose this and say, this is the proof? This is how you can have assurance. Living a righteous life. Why is that true? Because it is so foreign to sinful man. This is not natural. It's not, it's not natural to stand against the world that says, come on, if it feels good, just do it. Everyone else is do it. We will stop pointing at you. We will stop calling your names if you just leave those Christians. Come and join us. It's not natural to stand and say, no, this is truth. God is light. There's no darkness in him. I can't go on and tell him God is a liar. I, I just can't do that, right? So this is John's point. It's not natural. This becomes very visible. Maybe we feel the weight of this in our own lives, where we work and where we go, right, through the week. It becomes unapologetic quite quickly because we go, yeah, the world doesn't, oh my goodness. The world doesn't even want to know the truth. But obedience to God's commands with a focus on his glory becomes a wonderful proof. Now it's important to understand that this should not lead to any type of legalism. I do this for the sake no, we, we get to this point when John's saying, look, if you understand this propitiation, right, I get to pick up my cross. I get to follow my Savior. I get to hear him call me by my name. I get to. It's a natural response to the work of the cross that changes our lives, and we feel this in us. He's not saying be perfect, right? I get saved, you should be perfect. We should be growing and working on our salvation. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. God's at work. You're not perfect. But we press on and grow in our sanctification. Right? Growing in our holiness. There's a story of a pastor who had... had Got done preaching his message, and there was a lady who had attended that morning, and she was a little upset. And she said, I'm, I'm offended at the, the rituals you've put in your church service. Taking a step back a little bit, he thought, wow, what, 
we have rituals in our service that I'm unaware of. I, oh, I, he asked her to explain, and she says, why, you know, you're introducing these, these dreadful innovations in your church service, you're reading the commandments. He said, indeed, right? I, I, I get it, this innovation, we've, we've introduced it. We're going we're gonna to read the commandments, we're going to we're also going to do something a little bit more crazy than that. We're, we're going to press our people on to actually following them. Because <laughs> right? it's not just one to know. It's not one to just have intellectual knowledge, right? We're not talking about salvation. He's talking to believers. He's saying this should be working out in your life. This is the power of the cross. This is how it changes your life. This is how it becomes an assurance. This is how we can know. And so John says, here's the moral test. He's not pushing for any type of legalism. He's not pushing for perfection. John says, look, if, if anyone has sinned, right? John, in connection with this, right? My little children, chapter 2, verse 1, these things I write to you so that you may not sin if anyone sins. John realizes that we're not perfect, right? But we have an advocate. We have Jesus, the righteous, the propitiation. So John says, here it is. Here's the moral test, brothers and sisters. And then he kind of expands this idea. Here's the moral test, and he gives us some test results. Verses 4 and 5, he says, He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. And by this we know that we are in him. So to help us better understand this, John introduces two types of people, right? He just says, okay, here it is. We're going to compare and contrast here so we can better understand. On the one hand, we have a person who claims to know God, but doesn't keep his commandments. This is probably the same person who claims to walk in the light, but is operating in the darkness, right? And John says, okay, look, here's this guy. And to make sure you don't misunderstand how I feel about him, John goes on to say he is a liar. That is so not politically correct, Right? He's not mincing words. Can you imagine someone saying, man, you're, you're just a liar. That's horrible, right? Because we go to the commandments, we think, thou shall not lie. Because, hey, this person, and he's not saying deceive. He's saying this person knows better, right? He knows, she knows that there is, this is what it is. I know I'm not this, but I'm going to say it. So John's pretty severe with that. So when we have this, and the other side is, here's a person who obeys God out of a genuine love. Right? I love the Lord. I'm not perfect. I'm a sinner saved by His grace, and I'm pressing on and picking up my cross. There's days I fell in, but I understand it. And this is the idea that is attached to this person who obeys. So we want to look a little bit. And the first one I'm just going to call, this person has an empty profession, right? A profession without obedience. It's all talk, no walk, right? <clears throat> he who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments, he's a liar. The truth's not in him. So we have the harsh words, right? Claims to know, doesn't walk. John calling him a liar, right? Meaning, don't be deceived by anyone who professes this. And this person is not confused, right? Or, or misunderstands, and the person knows better. But is living outside of God's truth on purpose, yet claiming something else. Openly professing, maybe, right? This idea that that uh, he or she is a Christian, and John is saying, look, you're, you're lying. The truth is not in you. It's like the story of the deacon who was helping teaching a young boy's Sunday school class, and he was teaching the boys and talking about the importance of living this life, and he tells the kids, you know, why is it that people call me a Christian? You've got to love the sincerity of children. There was a pause for a moment, and one boy fessed up, and he said, maybe because they don't know you. All right. <laughs> 
So it's very important. It becomes an empty obedience. It becomes, well, you say it, but this is what I see. Proverbs 20, verse 11, even a child is known by his deeds, whether what he does is pure and right. You know, we talk about that verse as a family. We say even a child, and I point out to my sons that you know, your mom and dad, it's not just a child, right? But even a child. Right? The standard, the, the theology that carries the day in our home, we're all subject to it, the authority of God's word. So even a child, not just adults, but even a child. And for us, maybe this is where the struggle, right? Where, where maybe we're, we're dealing with the difficulty of this, living it out. Maybe we're focusing on the brokenness. We're focusing on, on uh, uh, you know, we messed up and we just have this tendency, just, you know, as Peter in the, in the water, as he steps out of the boat, we tend to focus on the way. We focus on that problem. So maybe sometimes we feel like, yeah, it feels like that. I'm not perfect. And again, I think it's important to understand we're not talking about leading towards perfection. We're talking about what we do. A maturity step in that moment is to say, let's come and let's call that sin. Let's call it what God calls it. Let's repent of that. And let's believe and trust that God has provided for me forgiveness. It's found in Christ. And he is awesome. And we love him. And when I mess up again, Lord, help me to overcome this. And I'll turn from this. And it says John Owen, I love it, his book, The Mortification of Sin. I encourage you to read that. He says, every day you have to fight this battle. Mortify that sin. And the days that we just, we lose it or we mess up. And he says, come back. What we don't want to be guilty of is, is like the actor, right, who plays the part. Looks good, says the right things, has all the right verbiage, right? But there is no fruit coming from that tree. In his book, The Mask Behind the Mask, his biographer Peter Evans was writing about the actor Peter Sellers. I don't know if you're familiar with Peter Sellers. Um, Spectre Clouseau is probably mo- most famous for it. The author says, he, you know, I, in studying uh, Peter Sellers, he said that he had played so many different parts that he kind of forgot who he was. He lost sight of himself. And I guess the story goes that at one point Sellers was out in the street and a person had had seen him and asked him, right, looking for an autograph, are you Peter Sellers? And his response quite quickly was, not today. And sometimes it's like that. We kind of lose sight of what this whole thing is about, and we focus on the issue and the struggle and the pain and the hurt. And and I want to say this morning there is healing and forgiveness. There's grace. Don't let our profession be empty, right? John says this person, they're lying. They're lying to you. Truth's not in them. But then he goes on and says, here's the other one, right? The, the obedient profession. Out of the right motive. Not about being legalistic or being uh, um, free grace, which says, let's sin more so God know. It's about understanding what the Lord has done and following his commandments. This person's not making great statements of how much they know God, right? Like the Gnostics did. We know God, we're above it. You know, it's interesting that John doesn't even say this person knows the Lord. Isn't that quite interesting? But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. He doesn't say they know God. He assumes it out of the conduct of their life. Right? There's a changed life. This person keeps his word. A person who keeps his word knows the Lord. Right? Not just in word, but in action. So there's two things I think jump out to this. The first I think we'll see in our lives, because we want to know assurance, we want to see this happening in us, is love, uh, love for God is perfected. Right? We want to see God's love perfected. I believe we begin to see it. You know, if God is the object, right, the reference, we're living for Him, following after Him, our love for Him should be growing. If a person loves God, 
They will seek to try and please God. That's the changed life, right? Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments, right? So we see this, the love for God perfected. We also see a spiritual confidence is demonstrated. In our lives, we begin to see spiritual confidence becoming demonstrated. This, here's the flow of thought, right? The person who, who obeys God can, once see their love grow for him. As we read scriptures, we're changed by it. And we also begin to understand that we are in God, right? There's a story of, of during World War II where Hitler commanded all the religious groups to unite so he could control them. And among the brethren, assemblies half complied and half refused. The story goes on that those who went along with this had a much easier time, but those who didn't faced very harsh persecution. And almost every family of those who resisted, someone died in a concentration camp. And when the war was over, feelings right, of bitterness ran deep within these groups of believers. And there was tension. Finally, they decided that the situation had to be healed, and leaders from each group met quietly for a retreat. So they examined the scriptures. They took time to pray. They took time to confess. They realized that their love for the Lord needed to, to win the day. They needed to grow in this. Later on, it said Francis Schaeffer, who knew of this, asked one of a friend who attended it and said, what happened next? And the person simply replied, we were just one. As they confessed their hostility, their bitterness to God, why God allowed this, why this group did this, he said the Holy Spirit began to speak, challenging us, bringing unity once again to us. And love filled their hearts and dissolved their hatred. You know, there's difficulties in life. There's things that we go through, but I think what we'll begin to see as we know God, as we follow after God, is our love for Him grows. Our love for His Word grows. And as we live out this life and we begin to trust Him, I think we see a spiritual confidence. It becomes demonstrated in our actions and maybe in our response. You see, it's true because we go through and we read the Word and there's commands of Scripture. Maybe you noticed this this morning. You know, there's commands of Scripture where we say, do this or don't do that, and we, we want to follow it. But as you, you spend time in the Bible, there's other things that aren't necessarily commands, but you want to see them in your, in your life as well. And that becomes this wonderful proof. Lord, I don't want to sin against your word. I want to hide it in my heart. I want to be a light that shines. We sing about that, right? This little light of mine. I want it to shine. I don't want to hide it back, but I want to do it that's honoring and pleasing to you, and this becomes the motivation. This is why John says this is a changed life. This is what you see. This is the fruit that comes from it. It's not I have to. No, it's I get to because he's my Savior. Because at one point in my life, I don't know about you, but I was the one pointing my finger at God saying, this isn't like it should be. This isn't true. And but he comes to me and changes me and says, yeah, this, this is what it is. God is good. And he goes on from there. So we see the, the results of this test. And then he goes and John says, look, in verse 6, here's what it looks like. The positive response, this is the test and application. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Let's just see the, the connection here, because John says the end of verse 5, you know, the, or speaking of truth, rather, the end of verse 4, he's a liar. The truth is not in him. Isn't it amazing the contrast of a person who doesn't know, says the truth's not in him, but the person who knows him by necessity, right, has the truth in him, and he walks after the Savior. John uses another unique 
uh, Greek word here, to live, right? To walk, it means to live and behave in a customary manner with possible focus, all possible focus upon con- continuity of action, right? And he uses the word for, for knowing, right? Gnosko, a continuity of relationship. And we see it played out. There's this relationship that happens. We see this in verse 3, and then we see the walking after the Savior, the living, the continuity of action, living it out. It says this becomes a proof, an assurance of our faith. This leads to discipleship, right? Isn't this the picking up of our cross? Isn't this the following after him? There's three things that I just want to mention briefly in this application. First, that this application should be very personal to you. You can't pass this on to someone else. You can't say, well, I hope someone else picks up my cross and and follows after me. No, Jesus comes to you directly. You directly. It's not just the church. It's not, it's not just those people over there. I wish they would get it right, right? It's not that. He's speaking to each of us directly, and he's very personal. If you remember the story when Jesus was reinstating Peter right after the, the resurrection, and he tells Peter three times, do you love me? And Peter goes, of course, Lord, you know I love you. And he has that exchange, and he's getting a little frustrated right at the end of it. It's in John 21, and you'll notice that in that passage towards the end of that, Jesus he reinstates him three times, then and then Peter kind of points out John, the disciple that Jesus loved. He goes, what about him? Right? He didn't follow you either. He, he doubted. What about him, Jesus? And Jesus cuts it off right at the pass and says, none of your business. If I want him to be here, what is that to you? But isn't that a wonderful how we do it? When the Lord calls us on our sin, don't we go, well, what about these other people? We do that, don't we? He's going, no, 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 no. No, no, no. You're responsible for you. We see this played out, right, in our lives. What about them? And Peter's saying, Jesus, John, he doubted too. Peter, we're talking about you right now. You're not responsible for John. You're responsible for Peter. So this discipleship, this, this application... It's personal. It's also very active, right? Jesus is not someone who's in the grave. He's alive and well. It's an active thing. It's not passive. It's not something I do on Sunday. It's not something when I do when we're assembled. No, Monday morning comes. And Jesus expects, John expects, you pick up your cross, right? And if there's a bad day and we sin, there's confession. Maybe there's asking forgiveness. Reinstating who you are because you believe in Christ. So it's active. And last, it's very costly. This discipleship, it is costly. Count the cost. Jesus says, right? Count it. If you want to come after me, deny yourself. Pick up your cross. Come die with me. There's the invitation. Right? Be serious with your faith. It's very costly. He picked up the cross and went to Calvary. And I think for us, it's very important that we understand that. Because when we come in contact with the true living God, We understand His grace, His mercy for you. Yes, what you're walking through today, He has forgiveness for you. Yes, today, what you're experiencing today, He has mercy for you. Yes, today, He maintains His justice, His holiness, and yet He's provided a way in His Son, our Savior Jesus. It is for you. And when you understand that, right, we get to follow Because I love him, because I love his word, he allows me to pick up my cross and follow my Savior.
let this challenge rest in us, but let it be a wonderful confidence, a wonderful assurance. Don't ever try to earn something from the Savior. You already have it all. You already have the kingdom if you have the Son. You're already an heir. It's not about earning or being good enough or saying the right things. It's about a changed life because you've come in contact with the true, the true God who changes us. Let us be encouraged. John says, here it is. Let the truth reign in us.